0: Hey, a family moment before we jump in. If you want to grab a Bible while I'm I'm talking, you can grab a Bible in front of you. It's important for us. We're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, so kind of prep you there. If, uh, if you don't know where that is, you can kind of find that in the uh, what's it called? It's It's the new te- yes, the index, the New Testament. That was good. Uh, yeah, the index, the front of it, the the front of the whatever Bible. Yeah. So, family moment. Uh, I want to just kind of share an update. Uh, at our, some of you were able to make our congregational meeting. And at our congregational meeting, we were talking about uh, our mortgage. And the elders and trustees have come up with a plan to refinance. At this point, we need to refinance our mortgage. And not just to refinance our mortgage. They're putting together a plan to pay off our mortgage within seven years. So within seven years, our desire is to pay it off, and we've got a plan to begin to do that. But at the end of August, we're probably gonna have this refinance taking place. So between now and August, we're kind of putting those things in place. And here's what we're asking, and what we want you to do is one to pray. Pray that God would uh, continue to provide so that we could knock this debt out. I think our debt's about 830, I think eight hundred and thirty, forty, something like that, thousand dollars. And to one, just pray. Uh, And then two, to prayerfully consider what role that God would have uh, you play in the process of helping us to knock down that debt. You know, here's a story some of us may not know, but we benefit from. About five years ago, it was about 80 people in the little, uh, the arts building over there that had a vision. They had a vision that God wanted to place a building, a church on this property. Because they felt at that time the building had kind of reached its limits. And some of you that were there, it really did kind of what I heard. It reached its limits. Uh, It was too small for what they were trying to accomplish. And so they bought this property. And then they kind of saw a vision of God placing a building that would allow them to be a light to this community. That this building would serve to reach this community for Christ. To be a, a place where others would be equipped hear the gospel, worship together, gather in community, and then go out and bring the good news of Christ to uh, this community. And that's what's happened. You know, through 80 people, this building was built, the land was purchased, this building was built, and now we are here today sharing in that vision. And our desire is really to complete that vision. And so between now and August, what we're asking you to do is prayerfully consider giving towards the principle of the loan. Between now and August, when the loan is closed, Prayerfully consider giving towards the principal of the loan, which right now stands about $830,000, which will allow us to have a lower payment and then begin to accelerate that seven year plan, uh, really begins with what that payment is. And so, what we're going to do as a church is because many of you have been giving very, very faithfully, we do have some capital available, some reserve capital available. We're going to be putting that towards the principal. Now, we have to have, and I know this is a lot of information, 90 days operating expenses. Does that make sense? So kind of 90 days operating expenses for us to qualify for the loan. But we're going to take a percentage, a, a amount of the remainder and place that towards the principal. So if you've been giving to Grace Covenant, uh, Grace Covenant, oh my gosh, where am I? I'm at Bergen Park Church. <laughs> I'm at Bergen Park Church. Slow down. Uh, if you have been giving, recognize you are helping us. you are helping us uh, pay down that mortgage. So uh, that's coming up um, at the end of August. You guys with me on that? That's that's where we are. And and we'll be revealing more information as the details come. As we finalize this, we'll be sharing more with you about that process. But right now, we want you to know uh, our priority is to complete that vision and then allow us to really operate in a debt-free manner so that everything that people give, uh, we give, that God gives, uh, goes back out to impact this community. You guys with me? All right. Family moment is over. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23 through, I think, 27. And then we're going to jump over to chapter 10, and we're going to look at um, a few more verses in there. And before we kind of read that, too, let me, here's another preview. What we've been doing, and we're actually going to end it today, and then next week we're going to be starting to walk through the Psalms, is... Uh, is we've been looking at what does a a life look like that's being transformed or has been transformed by the grace of God. What does a spiritual life look like? Because there's a lot in our culture that says this is what spirituality looks like. And so our culture has different ideas of what spirituality looks like. When a life has been impacted by God, when it's been touched by God, what does that life look like? Well, that's what the fruit of the Spirit, that's what it is. It's a sign of a heart, a life that has been transformed and continues to be transformed by the grace of God. Now, it's called the fruit of the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit grows in unison. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And today, you ready? Self-control. Which really seems, if you think about self-control, fruit of the Spirit, how does self-control work alongside the fruit of the Spirit? Because if it's the fruit of the Spirit, it's the fruit the Spirit produces in your life. And now you're throwing a little bit of me into the mix, a little bit of my energy. How does the fruit of the Spirit line up with what we are to do? Because that can be kind of confusing. On the one hand, we want to worship God and God transforms us. But there's also, Paul says, we got to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that God is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort, but grace is opposed to earning. You hear me on that? Grace isn't opposed to effort. And what happens is as we put the effort it and we start to obey God and follow his pattern and follow the direction the Spirit wants to lead, there's this miracle that takes place. In my effort, God empowers me. In my obedience, God empowers me. So there is an act of obedience. So when we get into self-control, we're going to be walking a a kind of a dangerous line in some ways because our culture has certain ideas about self-control and how it works. But the Bible, I think, comes at it from the opposite side. And it's kind of surprising at where it starts. So as we jump into this, that's kind of the frame of reference as we look at a life that's being transformed by the grace of God. So let's jump into it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to pick it up in verse 23, the word of the Lord. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self control in all things. Now they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we are imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the ear, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now if you want to jump, chapter 10, verse 11, chapter 10, verse 11. Now, these things happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks, anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. For no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But in the temptation, with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it this is the word of the lord all thanks be to god all right let me ask for god's help father i thank you that the word of god it's active we're not just studying we're experiencing we're encountering you you tell us that your word is powerful and so as it goes out, it produces what it describes, and that's something that's a miracle. You said, let there be light, and light was produced. And so, Father, you've described self-control, and as we study it, the Spirit comes alongside our energy to produce in us what we could not produce on our own. So we need humility in that, Father, just to surrender, I think, to reorder the desires of our heart, to reorder the passions of our that we're chasing after even today. And so, Father, would you come into the power of the Spirit, begin to reorder, to reshape the passions and desires that we have that may be in line with the direction and the influence of the Spirit of God in our life today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to look at the elements. The Bible describes self-control. Then we're going to get practical because we need to get practical. Practical. I mean, it's self-control. You, n- you need some practical stuff. And actually, there's a book that I read, kind of skimmed through this week by a guy named Drew Dick, and it's called Your Future Self Will Thank You. I thought that was kind of funny. Your Future Self Will Thank You, and it was really practical, really good book. If you, if you want to read on this subject, it kind of stirs you, Drew Dick, your future self will thank you. But we're going to look at the elements, then we're going to look at some practical ideas, and then finally, we're going to look at how do we actually cultivate this in our life. How do we actually cultivate this? So jump back in. Paul uses a metaphor, a metaphor we're familiar with, and he talks about an athlete, and he's specifically thinking of an athlete that's in the Isthmian Games or the Olympic Games, an athlete that is in competition. He knows what the prize is, and the prize was this wreath. You may have seen those, something perishable. You get it for a moment, you put it on your shelf, and then uh, next year it's gone. It's just sticks, I guess at the end of the year. And, he, and he, this is the metaphor that people in the church would have understood, and he's using that to describe what self-control looks like. So let's start back again in verse 23, which is the key, really, to this entire passage. I do it for, he says, I do everything I do for the sake of the gospel that, it, that I may share with them in its blessings. So now he's going to explain that. What does that mean? What does it mean to do it all for the sake of the gospel? Well, this is what it looks like. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises, and here's the word, self-control, not in a few things, not one day a week, but in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable, saying an athlete isn't just committed on Wednesdays. He doesn't just get up early on Tuesdays. It's not that this passion and commitment affects one single area of his life. The thing that you know about athletes is they are committed, which means their diet is committed, their time is committed. I would say their relationships are committed. If you want to grow in a sport, you want to get around people who are better than you. You want to be pushed and challenged. Your community changes. All because there's one single driving passion that's now driving the pursuit of your life. And he's using that to describe what self-control looks like. That one thing becomes the central pursuit. And out of that one thing, everything else in my life is getting reordered according to one single passion. Now, again, there's something of a contradiction in this idea of self-control. Because on the one hand, we're saying the self is out of control. Well, how can what is out of control bring things back into control? Does that make sense? Self-control, it's kind of a a difficult idea because how can we, that which is out of control, bring it back in control? An example of this and one of the things that we see in our culture today is really the explosion of self-help groups or even just 12-step groups. I've been through a 12-step group. And over the last 30 to 40 years, there have been 12-step groups that have been set up around just various addictions or even emotional unhealth or codependency, that in our culture today, based on that simple fact, people recognize my life is out of control. What that shows us is that many people recognize my life is out of control. How do I get my life back in control in a way that leads to the right desires, leads to the right things? Now, here's what's difficult for us. When Paul describes self-control, he's not talking about willpower. See, our culture says if I just discover what's in me, who I truly am, put that at the center and then use a lot of energy, I'm going to get to that place. And here's the thing that researchers will tell you about willpower. It runs out. Willpower is a finite resource. That's why I crash on Mondays. I, I absolutely fall apart. And this is true of a lot of ministry people. We, we just kind of fall apart like little children on Mondays Because we put so much energy, so much control into what we do on a Sunday, preparing for it, getting ready for it, being personable, you know, smiling. And I'm an introvert, so it's like, oh, it's all energy. This is all energy. And it's all willpower because it's not my natural abilities. I want to kind of retreat and just study and maybe ask a few questions and then pray. Let's go home. But that's not what God's called me to do. And so I've got to exercise. Therefore, on Monday, I'm telling you, I shouldn't make decisions on Monday because that's how I got here. Honestly, I sent out my resume on a Monday, and the Lord, the Lord can use that. He can use that stuff. But willpower, it runs out. So when Paul's describing self-control, he's not just simply saying, and there is an element of will, but he's not starting with willpower. Instead, he's starting with something that Jesus started with. Here's how Jesus, and we don't have this verse up there, but here's how he described it. He said, everyone then, this is Matthew 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine and And does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. So, what's he saying? Okay, here are my words. Everyone that takes my words and lives out of those words is like one who builds his house on a rock. Now, if you're a builder, you understand why that's important, because that's the first step. Why is he saying he builds his house on the rock? Well, the contrast is to build your house on the sand. And it doesn't matter what kind of materials you use. You can have the best materials on the sand. It's not going to last because the first thing first is the foundation. And Jesus, that's, he's saying this is the essence to self-control is you have to put first things first. If second things, if the materials of a building are first in your mind, it's not going to stand. The start of self-control isn't willpower. We're going to discover the start of self-control is the passion. It's the commitment. It's the vision for life. What has to be at the center of my life? Jesus says, what it has to be are my words. So self-control really is the ability, I think at times, to recognize or to choose the important thing over simply the urgent thing. See, self-control, it's the ability to recognize. I think it's the first point. You've got to recognize it. And then to choose the important thing, the foundation, The most central thing over the urgent thing. Because it's the urgent things. If you've heard that, read that article, The Tyranny of the Urgent, those are the things that tend to drive our schedule. They tend to drive our time. And Jesus is saying, if you don't start with a foundation in your life, if each day when you get up, you don't remind yourself that I'm not just building a house, I'm building a house on a foundation which is the word of God and knowing God, that's the starting point. It starts with a passion. It starts with a principle. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 6, seek first. What's he saying? Here's the key to self-control. What comes first? And he said what needs to come first is the kingdom of God and my righteousness. Set God first in your life. Now, in our culture, that seems very impractical because i got stuff to do. How's that going to pay the bills, Jesus? How is that going to address the issues that I'm dealing with? He's saying the first thing you've got to do before you start building the house, you've got to ensure the foundation is laid, it's secure. Seek first the kingdom and my righteousness. All these things, what does he say? They're going to fall in place. Everything else is going to fall in place. But if the first thing isn't first, the other stuff, even though you take care of it, eventually it's going to collapse. Now, Paul said it differently. He would say things like, set your mind on things above. Not on earthly things. Why? Because you died. What's he referring to? The gospel. Hey, I died. My life is now hidden with Christ and God. That's my first priority today. Not what I've got to do, but who I am and what God has done for me. If I'm not standing firm on that foundation, my behavior is going to be on the sand. It may be good action, but it's wrong foundation. It's not going to last. It's not going to last. The secret to self-control scripturally is putting first things first. And so here's, here's a key. It's not just simply a matter of the will. Self-control is a passion of the heart. It starts with a passion of the heart. So let's go back to the metaphor, right? You've got an athlete in the Olympic Games. Now, there's some will involved in that, isn't it? I mean, you've got to have some will to get up at 4 o'clock and go to the ice rink or go to the gymnasium, whatever it is. It takes some willpower. But that's not what drives the athlete. Because notice back in the illustration, verse 24, of First Corinthians nine, do you not know that all runners, all, they all run, but only one receives the prize? And so here's the vision: Run that you may obtain it. So he's holding up this prize, this perishable wreath that you may wear on your head. Now, to the runner, to the athlete, that's the passion set before him. He's visualized. She's visualizing herself on the stand, national anthems playing, mom, dad up there, right? They're balling. There's the coach that never thought you'd do anything. They've got this vision in life, don't they? They, They've got this picture, and they're up there, and they visualize, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm running for. Is that will or is that passion? Is that desire? Is that gut level, passion, commitment? It's a vision in life. It's not simply a rule I'm going to follow. You know, I want to be the best runner. That's going to get you so far. But when you sanctify your goals, this is how the secular culture describes it. You need to sanctify your goals. Now, part of the problem with self-control today, it's very selfish. For self-control to be self-controlled biblically, it can't be selfish. It can't be about me. It can't mean that I'm going to be healthy so that you guys think I look good. Right? That's not self-control because that's self-centered. Self-control starts when you're putting God and others first. Because obviously, if you're seeking first his kingdom as righteousness, then physical health can't be about how great I look. It has to be about either glorifying God through my body or as simple as saying, hey, I want to be around for my kids. I need to be here for them. I want to be strong enough to take care of the situations that are going on. So we have to sanctify those passions and desires. What he's describing is in self-control. What's the passion that's driving you? Because I know we want to think we're just intellectual, Right? I know some of us are kind of intellectual side of things. We want to remove the emotions. But you have to realize human beings are hope-based creatures. We're hope-based creatures. Now, we make things rational decisions, but if you look at your mistakes in life and a lot of your decisions, they're not rational at times. They're based on hope. They're based on some vision of the future that you think this decision, this moment's going to get me closer to that. And what Paul's saying is there's got to be an overriding passion, desire. Now, when that desire's not at work, sometimes you've got to exercise the will. That's where the spirit and the flesh have to work together. But he's saying it has, there has to be a passion. Now, let me give you an example of this, and I love this. In Genesis chapter 26, verse 20, it's talking about Jacob. Now, Jacob, one day, he was walking down the street. He saw Rachel, and he thought, wow. If you don't know the story, uh, Jacob and Rachel, he sees Rachel, this beautiful girl absolutely captivated by it. goes to the father uh, Laban and says I would love to marry Rachel she's amazing and so this is how scripture describes the passion that Jacob had the central force of his life and how that impacted his decision making listen to how it's described Genesis 29:20 20. so Jacob serves 7 years that seems like a long time i pursued my wife for 2 years There was no Laban involved. There was no labor involved. He served for seven years, and notice, and they seemed to him like what? A few days. Now, I can tell you, seven years is not a few days. And when you're in an agrarian culture, you're doing hard work. I don't know that I've ever worked a day that Jacob probably worked. You know what I'm saying on that? His level of output was not 12 hours. It was, it was all day. And then at night, he's, so for seven years, n- no compensation, just living in the house. And his goal is after that seven years, he's going to get Rachel. But the passion, right, the vision of his life drove those seven years so that they felt like that was a couple days, meaning it was worth it. Was it an intellectual will over the emotions? No, it was will, emotions. It's all together. Here's a vision for life, and every decision was driven by that. See, now God needs to be you ready for this? You're Rachel, because you're His. We're going to see that in Hebrews. You're his Rachel. God needs to become that overwhelming, passionate desire, the impact that he wants to have in your life. That needs to be the passion that drives the decisions that we make. We see that in in Jacob's life. We see it in the way it plays out. So on the one hand, it can't just be will over the emotions. No, self-control is about setting central in the heart God and his kingdom and what he desires in our life. And then beyond that, What is this prize that Paul is describing? I mean, what's the thing we got to set set at the center? What's what's the central pursuit? Well, again, in in verse 25, he describes that. Every athlete exercises self-control, not just in a couple things, but it impacts, that passion impacts everything, and they do it to receive this perishable wreath. So what is our wreath? What does that wreath mean? Now, there's a couple places where this word crown or wreath shows up. Uh, first of all, in Thessalonians chapter 2, what is it that we're chasing after? Here's how Paul describes it. 1 Thessalonians 2, 8. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our lives also. And then jump down, verse 19. After all, what gives us hope and joy... And what will be our proud reward and crown, so here's the language, wreath, crown, as we stand before our Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. See, what's driving us? What's our passion? And then he explains this. It's you. My crown is you. My wreath is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. Paul's saying the reason I'm doing everything that I'm doing, I'm doing it because I have a passion for you. So again, in Philippians chapter one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says it this way, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. And this is the New Living Translation, if you're wondering. if it's diff- Is it different up there? Yeah, it's a little. Uh, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to seek you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. See, jump back now, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. What is the crown? What are we pursuing? Well, verse 23, he describes it this way. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Then he says that I may share with them in its blessings. See, here's Paul's passionate vision. He says, I do all things for Christ. But see, it's not just about him. What he's describing is the overriding passion, my crown, is to see others satisfied with God as I am satisfied with him. His desire is to introduce you to Rachel. His desire, Laurel wreath, the thing that he's living for in life is to see others come to know the God who has brought so much joy in his life. That's what enables him to sacrifice. And you see that in the Bible. I mean, Paul sacrificed. He was persecuted. He was rejected. He went without. He went with plenty. Paul was able to do that not because he had willpower. Now, some days you needed that, but because he had a vision. He had a vision of the gospel and the gospel coming in and transforming lives. And he's saying, The joy that I have found in Christ, because I do through all things through Christ who strengthens me, he is my central pursuit. And he said, You know, I've, I've given up all things that I may know Christ. That's my central pursuit that everyone I know would come to share the joy that I have found in Jesus Christ and in the gospel. That's the central passion that informed his decisions. He didn't go to the Bible and say, Hey, how do I make the right decision? Now he went to the Bible to get a new vision for life. What are we going to the Bible to see? And then let me ask you, what is driving your life and schedule? Have you ever asked God, God, would you give me a vision of what you want me to do in my life? Now you need to always check that vision with the word of God, because it may be a little little nut, 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 nutsy, I guess it if you didn't do that, but I'm sorry. But what is that central passion? What's that pursuit? Now, let me get just practical for a moment. A couple things. First of all, what we're talking about is the center of self control, if you haven't realized this yet, is worship. The way the Bible approaches this differently is it's not willpower. The center of self control is worship. What is going to reorder your heart? Seeing God. Seeing God. Remember Peter? He's in a boat. On the shore, oh my gosh, I just realized Jesus, who you are. Get away from me. He sees God and his life changes. Isaiah, I think Stephen read from Isaiah, he sees God. What happens? I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a he's got a new vision, a people of unclean lips. I have seen the Lord God Almighty. What changed Paul's life? It's a vision it's called the road to damascus he encounters jesus christ jesus comes in and saves him he gives him a new vision for life paul could never see a decision unless he saw it through the lens of that experience and that vision of what god had done in his life see self-control it's about worship the reason we make the decisions we do is always out of what we worship so for example here's here's a young man that uh, he's got a, a difficult job that job's requiring him to work a lot of hours. So what does he do? He finds some, some help, some medical help in a sense. Maybe it's not legal medical help, some, some drugs that allow him to stay alert, allow him not to work just 8 hours but 12, 14, 16 hours, and he is just in that. And now years go by, what happens? His body deteriorates, the drugs take an effect on his mind, and now he realizes I'm now addicted to this narcotic because of my passion for this job. Now what does that person need? You may say, well, they need to get detoxed. Okay, that's true. They need help, but see, they need to first uncover what is the passion that caused me to run to drugs. What's the foundation that's causing me to run to these narcotics? It's my career is out of order. When you put your career at the center of life, guess what you lose? Life. Life. Because you know what happens when you're a workaholic and all you're doing is putting your life into work. That wife, that husband, they're not going to be around for much longer. If you don't invest into that marriage, the money itself, you're not going to enjoy that. Because you're constantly striving. What's happening in that heart is the the loves are disordered. You've got to reorder the heart. Now, what does that look like? Here's just another illustration quickly. Imagine there's two people in a room. It's two people in a room. It's an ugly room they got this rickety desk, they're in this chair, and all they're doing every single day is stuffing papers into an envelope. I guess they're taking off that little strip, you don't lick it anymore, and, and that's their job. Every single day, they're putting information in envelopes. Now, one guy looks at his job and he says, this job stinks. I hate my life, I hate my job, I hate the envelopes, I hate the smell of the envelopes, I hate the fluorescent light, I hate the guy sitting next to me, I hate everything. I hate the coffee. Everything's bad. The other guy is sitting there right next to him, right? Same envelopes, sitting next to it, I love my job. I love these envelopes. I love the creases. I love the lighting. I lo- this guy's a jerk. I love the guy, though. I love my job. Why? Well, see, one, we told him at the end of the day, end of the day you're going to get $50. The other one we said at the end of the day, we're going to get $10,000. What's the difference? Is it willpower? No, it's had nothing to do with willpower, the reason that one has the ability to make the right decisions and work hard and enjoy it is so they got a new vision in life. Well, realize the gospel says we are the guy that's getting a hundred thousand, a million at the end of the day. Because we're not getting what we deserve, we're getting what Jesus deserved. And Paul's saying, My passion is to share that hundred thousand dollar experience, million dollar experience, billion dollar experience with every single person that I come in contact. That's the prize that's driving my decisions. What's driving yours? So practically, self-control is worship. Now, just quickly, what, what do you need for that? A couple things. One, you need scripture. And if we had enough time, we could jump over to, and you can see this in 1 Corinthians 10. He talks about the foundation that scripture has to play in your life, that Paul recorded what God had done in the past to remind them of who God is. Now, here's the illustration on that. Jesus himself was saturated with the word of God, to the point that when he bled he bled scripture. I don't know if you saw this cuz when you're stressed out, right? What comes out? It's what's in there. Cuz when you're stressed, you don't go, "Hmm, I wonder what the best decision, I wonder what the best thing to say is," right? You don't have self-control. When you're stressed, you're tired and all that stuff, the pressure's coming on, it just comes out. And you're like, "Oh no." Well, what came out of Jesus? Here's Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest. And he said, "Peter, put away your sword." Don't you know I can call ten legions of angels, whatever that is? It's a lot. I'm doing this so that the word of God would be fulfilled. What does he have? He's got a Rachel. He's got a vision in life. The reason this is happening is to fulfill the word of God. If you don't have the word of God in there, you can't stop and pause and go, while Peter's cutting off some guy's ear and just hang on a chill out for a minute, what does Scripture say? It's got to be right there. It's got to be like an athlete, which is a reaction. On the cross, what what do you see Jesus on the cross? On the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. Where is he getting that energy from? He quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. What's he doing on the cross? He's renewing his vision. Because what happens when you're on a cross? You're forgetting your vision really quick. On the cross, Jesus quotes scripture, why? Because that's where he knows his foundation is. I don't want to live in the sand right now. This is not sand time. This is rock. And when your heart is saturated in the Word of God, the Word of God comes out, and it allows you to make decisions in those moments. Because that's when the will and the spirit they meet, and the spirit empowers the decision to be made in that moment. And what else you need, church? Listen, you've got to have community. You've got to stop convincing yourself, "I've got it. I've got it." No, you don't. That's why Jesus came. We think Jesus came to get us to heaven. No, he came to get heaven in us. And you got a lot of hell in you. We're hellions, right? What's sin? Sin's addiction. It needs 12 steps. It needs one step, Jesus, but it needs community. Every single addiction group is always in community. It's never, hey, go out there and try your best. It's not going to work. Because the guy on an island is already lost. It's the one that's in community, and Scripture's constantly saying, it's a cord of three strands. It's, that's what's going to hold us together. You've got to have people that have the Scripture central. You need somebody that's got a vision, You get right? You want that foundation, but then the Word of God has got to come alongside, and then in community, and then finally, the final thing is you've got to know God's faithful. You've got to know that God is faithful, because what enables us to endure? Let me ask this question. What enabled Jesus... To endure the cross. See, he had a vision, right? He had the word of God in him. He didn't have community. In a sense, that was all lost. But in Hebrews chapter 12, and I just want to go to this quickly and we'll, we'll close. In Hebrews 12, listen to what enabled Jesus to endure the cross and overcome. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Since we are surrounded, Hebrews 12, 1, by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. That's what, that's what Paul just described, right? The race. We've got to run that race. Well, how are you going to do it? Here's how you've got to do it looking to Jesus. Stop looking to your sin. Stop. Guilt doesn't work, grace does. Looking, what is he saying? As I'm running this race, I've got to look to Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He is the founder, perfecter of our faith. Who? For what? The joy set before him. How did Jesus endure the cross? Because of the joy, the vision, the Rachel that was set before him. He had a vision. He had a picture. He had an overriding passion. He had a Rachel. Seven years, two days. That enabled him to endure the cross, despising its shame, and seat, be seated at the right hand of of the throne of God. You've got to see that on the cross, what did Jesus gain? What was his Rachel? Listen, he had God. He had the glory of God. He knew what heaven was like. He wasn't earning anything. The one thing he wanted is the same thing Paul wanted. He wanted us to share in the joy of the gospel. His vision was set on us. You were his Rachel. What enabled him to endure the cross? The torment, recognizing that you would then share in the joy and the power of knowing God and having the gospel come in and renew your spirit. See, to the degree we see Jesus enduring, self-control, right? That's enduring, self-control, making that decision why? Because he's got a vision in front of him, and that vision is us sharing in his glory, sharing in that goodness, That's what gives you a vision for others, but it also, it's what gives you a vision in that moment of stress, to choose not the urgent thing, but the best thing, the right thing, you with me on that? We have to be broken, first of all, by Jesus submitting himself to what was best, and what was best for us. And to the degree that we're broken by Jesus doing that for us, we're humbled by it, we're amazed by it, we get a new vision for it, that enables us then to go out to allow the Scripture, allow community, and then allow that vision of God's faithfulness to drive us towards making those decisions in the midst of stress. It's not going to happen overnight. This is not something you go out Monday, and in Monday by afternoon, it's like solid, I got it, Pastor, Thanks. It takes all of us setting our eyes on Jesus together and pursuing that for the benefit of this community that they may know Christ. You with me on that? Hey, this is the vision God has for us at Grace Covenant. It's why we want to pay off this mortgage. It's why we come together. It's so that we would set our eyes on what God is doing and in that to allow that to work out into our community. It's the only thing that's going to bring joy. It's the only thing it brings joy. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that it was, I thank you, Father, how honest Scripture is That Jesus had to endure. He had to endure. It wasn't easy. It It took some will. It took some spirit. It took everything to capture in his heart a vision of us before the throne of God. Father, that we would be cleansed. Those that while we're yet sinners, you died for us. And that you knew that, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. They're like children. They're lost. They're walking in darkness. But those that are walking in darkness, even today, in Jesus' name, we want to see a great light. We want to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, in the power of the gospel that brings life. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, I just invite, Lord, Holy Spirit, if there are those that are here today that just, they need to surrender, they need to stop stop pushing, but simply surrendering, because you've already got the power. You've already got the vision, and what we need to do is to worship. You oppose the proud. You tell us you give, and it's available grace to the humble. Would we today, Father, just surrender and say, Lord Jesus, would you give me that greater vision for life, that I would seek first the kingdom, your righteousness. Father, you take care of the rest. Show me what that means. Allow the word of God, again, to be rekindled as a passion, a desire. And, Father, show me my need for sisters, brothers, that can walk in that with me. And Father, if there are those here that today they don't know you, would they just simply cry out, Father, accept me in the basis of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I know he came and lived and died so that I might be forgiven of my sins. But also, Father, he rose so that I might be empowered to walk in newness of life. Father, with the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of life in Christ, Father, would we receive that? Would you guide us this week looking to Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, thank you for the truth and thank you for the clarity, Father, you desire to bring. In Jesus' name, amen.